What does that even mean? I don't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go into it. Okay. I'm no. You know, I'm not part of the Department of Speculation. <laughs> you like that? It's a Jenny awful joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a Jenny awful joke. Oh, so many, so many, so many damn books. Yeah, uh, I'm you. Christopher. <laughs> and I'm Drew. And uh, this is so many uh. damn books. And we have a special <laughs> guest in the uh, studio slash library today. We have Vanessa Manko who is an author, um, a local author of The Invention of Exile, which came out last year, and the paperback version came out this summer. Beautiful new cover for her. Yeah, I love that cover. Oh, thank you. Uh, She got her MFA from Hunter. She uh, earned the Herzog Fellowship uh, over there. And you come from a dance background. Yes, that's correct. Um, Which, you know, dancing, writing... So similar. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not similar at all. No, th- actually, they are. There are some similarities. Oh, we'll definitely have to get into that um, for sure. But but first, we before we get much further. Oh yeah. Uh, what'd you buy? What'd you buy? What'd you buy, Drew? Um, I two things. One, I broke down and bought uh, the girl in the spider's web. Oh yeah, the David Lagerkrantz continuation of Stieg Larsson's Millennium series. Everyone says it's good. That's what I've heard. You Everyone know? says it's like, eh, yeah, it's the thing. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. He I was never. It, it was. He was never a, a stylist. Yeah, it was the creations. Yeah, and if you can get you know two thirds of the way there with those, and then if you plot it a little bit better. <laughs> I'm sure it's gonna be great. Yeah. Um, well, it's um when you think of, when you think of like Sherlock Holmes pastiches, yeah. You know, like a lot of people can capture Conan Doyle pretty easily too. Yeah. Or uh, I don't know how easy it is. I've never tried. The other thing, and I think you'll like this, is uh, the Bill Clegg. Did you ever have a family? Oh yeah. It's the the latest pals indispensable. That's nice of them. I'm only shaking my head because <laughs> I really I don't think it's fair to be. A really successful literary agent, and, and also, also a really you're wonderful an writer. Excellent writer. Yeah. I don't think that's you're not allowed to have both, <laughs> um, unless maybe it's me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, that sounds good. How about you? I bought. So I am a. I have many editions of Peter Pan, and usually I think I don't need another edition of Peter Pan. Um, but this, the designer uh, who goes by the name, or the team of designers that goes by the name Mina Lima, um, designed a new Peter Pan edition. And they are most famous for designing all the books that you see in the Harry Potter movies. So all those really beautiful, mm. you know, um, sort of letterpress covers and things. And uh, they did the illustrations and cool little cutout things and a bunch of like spinning wheels and of course I had to buy that Peter Pan. Well and sure. I, and now I'm going to read it again because I don't think you can read Peter Pan too many times. Yeah, I agree with that. I can't remember the last time I read it. I'm very very excited. I'm I, it's I'm going to consider a preparation because there's that new Peter Pan movie. Um with What's uh, this one? Is this one It's called Pan. Pan. Yeah. With Hugh Jackman? Yeah. As as the the Blackbeard? Er, the er Captain Hook. Yeah, yeah, not Hook. Yeah, Hook is a nice guy in the yeah. new version. Because everything needs to be rebooted. <laughs> Ever. Vanessa, you don't wanna you don't wanna talk about what you bought. 
No, I can talk about it. Oh, yeah, what'd you buy? <laughs> you I should. <laughs> well, um, I actually have been looking up this book for a while, and I finally got it. It's called Miss Emily. I don't know, have you seen it? Um, it's by um, Nula, I think I'm pronouncing her name, Nula, o- Nula O'Connor, or Nula Connor. I have it in my bag. And it's, um, it's about Emily Dickinson, oh, and yeah. it's about the friendship she strikes up with the family maid. Oh, wow. oh cool. And... The it's told from Emily Dickinson's perspective. Oh, well. So <laughs> I thought, gosh, how did the writer do this? You right. know, I mean, that is a, that is a ballsy move. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I wanted to see, I wanted to see how she sort of inhabited Emily Dickinson's voice, and well, that sounds really interesting. Cool, cool. Yeah. And then, of course, because it's the Ferrante Fever, I oh. bought the fourth yeah. one. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, re- we uh, read the first one for the podcast. We're, we've got the Fever, too. I'm gonna Okay. Have myself. you read the others yet? Not no? yet. Okay. Not yet. But I'm going to. Yeah. I think it's going to end up being like a binge, too. It's going to be two, three, four, just... That's exactly what I did. And yeah. so I'm, I know I'm going to finish this in, you know, a couple of days or a week. I don't know. And then I'm going to be sad. <laughs> so I might have to go back and reread them again. I don't know. Cool. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to um, going through Ferrante Fever. I didn't want to start the. I didn't want to like go all the way deep and then have to wait for the fourth one. So now I'm ready to to just binge binge watch it. <laughs> Vanessa Manko, let's talk about invention of exile. So in your in your words, what is the invention of exile about? It's a story about a Russian immigrant who comes to the U.S. and is deported during the first wave of the Red Scare, and he. Uh, falls in love with an American woman who he marries, and they return to Russia. Um, they have to flee once again because, of course, there it's the Russian Revolution, and they travel through Europe and wind up in Mexico. And by this time, they have three children, and the children and the um, uh, wife are allowed back in the country, but Austin, the main character, is left in Mexico, um, awaiting year after year the possibility that he could return to the United States and um, reunite with his family. And so it follows his life in Mexico City. Um, He's cobbling together an existence as a repairman. And he thinks that uh, he's also an inventor. And he thinks that his inventions are eventually going to get him back to his family. I I would love for you to just go back into the background of, of writing it, because I know that it has it had many different iterations in this one is the one that came out is very different from the one that you originally first turned in. I wrote a whole first uh, draft, obviously, and um, I realized that and other readers that I had were telling me that it just something wasn't working. Um, and I had to go back and decide, all right, how am I gonna how am I gonna really make this story what I know? it can be and what I, what I want, what I want it to be and sort of hit the note that, um, that I wanted to, to strike. And so I, in the first draft, there's a love story that develops much further than, um, than what, what is net, what it is now in the book. Um, and so that would be between Austin and Anna Rose. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't, working at all because 
Austin is so desperate to get back to the United States and his family and his wife and sort of being um, caught up in a romantic relationship in Mexico City. Uh, it just didn't make didn't make a lot of sense. So, um, or it just wasn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I basically pulled back and I rewrote. I would say about half of it. Wow. <laughs> uh, and that was kind of hard because I had to, you know, cut out all of these scenes that I thought were so great. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, you know, had developed the characters and. Do you soothe yeah. by uh, that by sort of thinking like maybe I'll use like these love scenes in something else or are do you, are, do those feel like they're just on the cutting room floor forever? And you'll yeah, they're probably on the cutting room floor. I, okay. You know. It's, mm, it's, ha- it's hard. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm also curious. I mean, I know that you um, also. I've heard you say that you were in it more, like uh, uh, of oh, sort yes. of Vanessa. Oh my of goodness, you. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> That shows you how long ago that first draft was. Um, yeah, there was sort of a narrator kind of framing the story um, and sort of like watching the, the story unfold. Um, and, and that was because uh, the, the story is partly based on a grandfather that I never knew. And so I think I wanted to uh, have that sense of the narrator is learning the story along with the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, did it did it feel more autobiographical when you were doing that? Did it feel like it was you, it was you looking into your grandfather's story and then sort of fictionalizing that process? Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. Um, but also, it's interesting. I realize now that I think that that uh, narration or that sort of frame narrative helped me get into the story oh. or get into the mood of the story. And and then I, my editor um, said, you know, actually, you, you just really don't need it at all. And, of course, you know, she was right. Just let the story <laughs> speak for itself. Um, but I was very attached to that for a while and, and then, you know, came around and realized, okay, it's much better without it. Right. The, um, so not having known your grandfather who inspired this story, was it, is this something that had been like a family legend or how did you, how did you come to find the sort of the seed of this story? Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny. I heard, I heard the story in bits and pieces um, through family conversation and I was young. I never really knew quite what all of the um, older people in the family were, were talking about. So I just heard like fragments of things. And um, and there was at one point when I was um, very young, I just kind of thought my grandmother didn't have a husband. <laughs> and I realized, well, that that can't be the case. And so I kind of... <laughs> I kind of started asking around because nobody really spoke about him. You know, it was, um, I like to call my dad's generation the sort of generation of secrets. You know, nobody talked about <laughs> anything. And uh, and I had an older father, so. Um, and so one day I just asked him, you know, who was your dad? And um, he said, oh, he was a mechanic in Mexico City. And so I always had this sort of image in my head of this man with, I don't know, greasy hands. I don't know. 
And it was just so strange to me because I grew up in suburban Connecticut and I was thinking, Mexico, like how did the hell did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> and then slowly, um, you know, as I grew up and heard more, I kind of um, learned more of the story. But nobody ever really talked about him that much. And I was always very curious. Well, who was he? What happened to him? Um, how did he live in Mexico City by himself, separated from his family? What were his days like? And and that's really... Um, the novel started when I was at Hunter getting my MFA. And I, if I remember correctly, we were having to do some sort of exercise. I mean, Hunter wants you to one of the things that I loved about the program is they really try to get you to write outside of yourself. And um, how did your um, how did your family react to to it? Um, you know, this sort of fictionalization of the of a family story. You know, I think th everybody was really moved and and touched. Uh, I was very scared to show it to them hmm. um, because I grew up closer to um, the Italian side of my family and my father's side um, always uh, was a little separate and because they didn't talk about the story I never I don't know I think right now they're proud and they're happy to see uh, that his story has been told mm -hmm. um, and the, mostly the injustice of it I think um, sort of speaking of of injustices there's something as i was reading it i was struck by like how oddly timely the broad concept of the story of being un like being separated from your family especially the u.s mexico divide and i was just wondering if you both either with this book or just with your things you're going to write in the future like do you have a sense of wanting to engage with those things or are you thinking about the story first and sort of political implications people can put on it or not. Yeah, no, it was definitely the story first. But of course, as I was writing it, you know, I would look at in the newspaper every day and there was a story about a deportation and um, families separated by the U.S.-Mexico border. And yeah. of course, I had, you know, complete empathy um, and thought, my gosh, you know, history repeats itself. There's more families getting torn apart and... Um, it's, you know, just has devastating consequences for the family members that are left behind or the ones who have to go back. And, you know, I, I, I've, I guess I just always was interested in the, the story more, the human, the human element of it. I think that that was one of the most compelling parts of the storyline for me is, is the sort of shift between thinking, uh, we're, where I'm, we're following someone who I believe might be a genius, might be unknown and, and working in obscurity and has these amazing ideas. And then as it comes forward, it's, you get a little more worried about him. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. and he's not actually, you don't actually, he's not actually a genius. He's just, um, he's just been working on these things and not talking to anyone for so long. And I think that that was the big, turn in the book for me and the big um was was we had thought of him one way and it, that got completely changed um 
And I was curious, you know, you mentioned before in your, you, you have, you come from a dance background mm -hmm. and, and that felt very much like a big turn. Yeah. Mm. Oh, so that's very interesting. <laughs> nice. Cause when you were, when we were talking about, um, when I said there are similarities, there are similarities between dance and writing. Right. Um, it's exactly that kind of thing. Um, you know, sometimes when uh, you think about a piece of choreography and there are certain patterns and rhythms and um, shapes that happen, and I sometimes I, I actually, when I read novels, I kind of see them that way too. Um, and I think that's exactly what I was trying to do is to make a, make a move, like make a complete um, uh, different formation, <laughs> if, if, if I could... I'm thinking in dance terms. Sure. You know? no, talking talking <laughs> dance like terms. I'm sure, I'm sure some, somebody's going to be really into that. Yeah. Um, but there are similarities between dance and writing. Um, not only just the shape of a novel and the shape of a dance, or, um, but also, you know, it's a practice that you have to do every day. Mm -hmm. um, also, repetition is so important um, in order to to sort of master um, a phrase of movement, you have to do it over and over and over again. And so much of writing is in the rewriting. Um, I think pacing and rhythm also sure. is very important. Um, I was curious, um, because usually, or recently we've had people on who are very close to the release of their book. But this one uh, came out last year, and I was yes. just curious. Now that now I assume you're working on a, a second, uh, and I'm curious. You know, what is that like working on your second? Having had this one behind you, does that help, or does it? Is it the same process before? And there's just one. You just have a milestone. Well, it's still very hard. <laughs> 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 I wish I could say, oh yes, I've learned the secret of how to write a novel, and I can do the second one. Um, I feel like I'm, you know, a novice all over again. It's uh, it's very difficult. I mean, I'm sort of, you know, working on it as much as I can, and you know, writing every day and trying to get the the shape of it in my mind. Is it too early to talk about what it might be about, or you can say yes? I'm I'll just tell you like one element of it, which is that uh, I. I was very interested in the idea, this is just the larger idea, of learning a character's story through the um, roles he choose to, chooses to play in theater. Oh. Cool. So I'm, that's kind of what I'm going with. I, well, you know, it's, it's moving along. And <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, so we have this, the new uh, segment. Oh, the yeah. newish segment where we pretend like it's a different segment than our regular show. <laughs> uh, reading Comprehension. Yo, what did you read and where did you read it? Did you like the book? Would you ever reread it? Did the words sink in? Do you have a question? Did you understand it? What's your comprehension? Reading Comprehension. Reading Comprehension. And uh, the question that I have for us uh, this time is what is a book that doesn't, that has not been turned into a movie or doesn't have maybe, or was going to be turned into a movie and wasn't, uh, mm -hmm. that do you think needs to be turned into a movie? Because we're going to be talking about Oscar award winning 
uh, movie slash Man Booker Award winning novel, The English Patient by Michael Undoche. And it's uh, it's an incredible book, and it made a, a very good movie as well. And I'm yeah. curious what other things think you guys think need to be translated into celluloid. God, it's that thing of like, does it need to be, or will it be? Yeah. Well, yeah. That's that's see. That's why that's what I kept thinking about when I was thinking about this question because my the first thing that always comes to mind for me is Neil Stevenson's uh, Snow Crash. Which is an incredible sci-fi novel mm-hmm. about like an Ur Matrix sort of thing, and the the guy's name in the in the book is actually hero protagonist, <laughs> 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 and um, he's set in a, it's a, in a world where the nations have all been taken over by um, companies. You can just imagine it now. And they, this book came out in the early '90s, and it's so strange to think that. It was so. It was so many things. Uh, uh, you know, a send up of consumer culture and uh, a kung fu book, <laughs> and uh, also about like the beginnings of the internet. And uh, and it still hasn't been made into a movie. And it just seems like it needs to be. Um, the last I heard, it was going to be made into a movie back in 2012 with Joe Cornish, who made uh, Attack the Block. And uh, you know, these things fall through. Yeah, that was mine. What about you? Uh, uh, Vanessa? Yeah, I um, thought about this a lot. And so, but I kind of thought that um, Edna O'Brien's Wild Decembers, hmm. have you ever read it? No, uh, no I've never heard of it. It's a beautiful story. Um, um, it's sort of like a, there's a triangle relationship. There's a um, a brother and a sister and they're, they own land in Ireland, and a neighbor, uh, a neighbor moves in, and there's some uh, land disputes between the neighbor and the brother. Mm. And then the sister falls in love with the neighbor, mm. and so there's all of this tension and sort of betrayal, and there's you know just beautiful evocative description of Ireland, and I thought you know. You know, with the love story and the um, sort of rivalry between the brother and the neighbor, uh, just thought it would make an am- amazing, amazing film. Um, Definitely, especially like you said, like Ireland, and I think that um, I think those smaller, smaller books can be actually kind of ma- be made into like bi- like I actually think short stories are often um, could make excellent whole movies because novels are kind of hard to hard to cover. Yeah, uh, Drew, did you have a have a? I do. I I find that a lot of times when I'm reading, I'm like, oh, this is not necessarily a treatment for a movie, but I'm like, I see how this is going to be a movie at right. some point. But then every once in a while, it I read a book where I think that, and I don't feel as though that was the author's intention. Okay. Um, and Alexander Heyman's new book, The Making of Zombie Wars, which is about a guy who wants to be a screenwriter and it has all of these moments of like his ideas for screenplays, but it also, it, it read like I've always wanted an indie movie to read as a book. Okay. It just like, it has, it has the beats that you expect sort of like the quirky main character and sort of the strange romance that ends up coming together, but it works so well as a book. I was like, I would love to see, real people do this because I think it'd be great. I, I, I especially like the idea of 
a screenwriter who's having ideas like to actually visualize some mm-hmm. of those like crazy ideas that they like just a cut into his mind. To see oh yeah, that. uh, that, that'd be pretty fun. It'd be a, like a great ninety-minute movie. But yeah, so the English patient. It's um, if you haven't read it or heard of it for some reason or seen the movie, it's um, it's about right after World War Two. World World War Two has just ended. Yeah. And um, you're following a nurse in a bombed out hospital in, um, uh, help me out. Provincial there. Italy. Provincial mm-hmm. Italy. It's a, there, she's in a villa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she has decided to stay behind. Everyone else is gone uh, because she has a patient, uh, an English patient, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, who is covered in burns and can't move. Um, and she has decided to minister to him and, and stay in the many different rooms of this villa. And uh, a couple other characters end up showing up at the at the villa and making life interesting. Mm. Um, and you find out more about the English patient as he explores the memories that he has, um, but he can't really remember who he is. Yeah. There's something beautiful about the way that it is almost several st- several individual stories that are brought together in a way that doesn't feel like... You could take any of these stories and write a whole novel about any of them, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you don't feel like any of them get a short shrift or like there's a, a too diffuse a focus. It all comes together really beautifully. Mm-hmm. You know, I love how um, it's woven together. That uh, That's kind of how I think of it. It's just this great big tapestry. Um, and when you, you think about it, I mean, he the world he presents with each of the characters. Um, I mean, Hannah in the villa, but her backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, and Caravaggio, the thief, and uh, the world of um, the desert explorers and the map map makers, and then the bombs um, yeah. and the sapper. Um, and I, I just thought of all the research he must have done to bring all of to evoke all of these worlds and then bring them all together. Right. But that actually is sort of what I was thinking of. Um, I really, one thing that I, uh, it's separate from this, but something that I sort of love is um, when novels in the like late fifties, early sixties, even through into the early seventies were re-released as um, paperbacks, especially by pulp paperbacks. Mm-hmm. They would do like really lurid covers <laughs> and you know, like uh um, I can remember like the catcher and the rye one is just like follow a psychopath <laughs> as he <laughs> wanders around New York City. And I was thinking like there are so many elements to this book that would work for a pulp cover. I mean, you've got you've got a bomb diffuser, mm-hmm. you've got a thief, <laughs> you've got like planes crashing in the desert yeah. and gypsies like like and a burned man that's covered in bandages who's got the most lurid like sex story ever <laughs> <laughs> um but it's it's but all of these things are treated with he wants to find the humanity behind all of these things about like why why anyone would ever want to go around trying to defuse bombs was was the really the I was uh, getting very obsessed with the sapper story mm. because it seemed to me the the most wild thing that you know world war ii in the in the span of the war the bombs were getting more and more Mm -hmm. wild and difficult to defuse so every time that he comes across a bomb he has no idea 
how difficult it will be. And I, I mean, there are sequences in the book that are, I feel like are as, you know, heart pumping as sort of a hurt locker sort of scene. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Which you don't expect from this. I don't, I, I mean, all the covers of any of these, um, uh, any version of this book and it won the booker 23 years ago, which is something that mm. is 23 years ago. Yeah. Um, but, uh, all the covers of it make it seem like this really quiet book and, and, and Dutch's writing is quiet, I think is a, Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I feel like you might get that description about your writing. Yeah, I do. I've <laughs> often been told. I've often been told you have a quiet, yeah, quiet how do you feel, voice. How do you feel about that? Um, about that descriptor for Andoche and for you. What does that mean? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess it. I guess it means sort of. Um, don't know like whispering in the reader's ear in some way how are you I mean, describing it to me drew with oh i mean it, yeah <laughs> it, like his prose it feel at times like it's like somebody drapes a napkin over your face and then like pulls it off <laughs> and just that, that that sense of like it's it's very soft and very lovely but it's it's fleeting and it sort of brushes it it flows over you in a way mm, interesting i mean well he's you know he's a poet too so i think that there's uh there's a sort of rhythm in his prose that's very makes it very poetic. So you've read a lot of Andache. Yeah, I mean he's one, he is one of my favorite favorite writers. Um, the fact that you said I'm quiet and <laughs> compared and comparing me to you know makes <laughs> comparing me to Andache makes me feel good. But so what what is it about um is it is it his lyric lyricality or is it his ability to find these um backgrounds to these these very human characters that I think in the hands of another writer I don't think that they would necessarily be poorly served but they definitely wouldn't be as fleshed out as he can do. Yeah, I mean I th- I think it's both. I, I mean I love the uh, I love the writing but I do love the sense that the characters uh sort of come on the page um, and then they're in a, you know a sort of present moment per- particularly in this when they're all in the villa and that's the present moment and then he dips back into the past so we sort of like get a sense of the characters um, and everything that's they're they're already kind of wounded when we see them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and their behavior is sort of odd and strange and then he dips back into the past and we kind of begin to understand oh okay this is what has happened i think he's just um so so good at that and also i love and i don't i'm sure you you notice this but the change of um point of view mm-hmm. how sometimes he'll uh write in the first person and then it will change and it'll be the same character but then it'll be the narrator taking over that character's story yeah. and then it'll be in the third person um so i don't know to me that gives it a kind of uh interesting rhythm um and makes me feel like it's a little choreographed <laughs> right yeah. bring up the idea of dance again well, you mentioned the 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 villa, and there is there. Those are some of my favorite scenes. Actually, is in the sort of present moment mm-hmm. of the story, mm-hmm. yeah. which actually um, it felt a little bit. 
you know, there's there's a post-apocalyptic moment right now in current um, contemporary fiction, but that actually also felt very um, post-apocalyptic to me of just like there's this bombed out world that they're living in. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it was the end of, it was the end of the world there. There was nobody, it's nobody there, bombs everywhere, sort of just like partying with whatever you have left. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and anytime that they found another bottle of wine or, just <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. or like went foraging and found something really good in the forest, it just, it's that same feeling of, you know, when you're reading on um, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, when they like come across like a, a treasure trove or something. Mm-hmm. These are, those are really nice moments, but it definitely has that sort of, it almost feels like, like, ro- you know, wearing rose colored glasses of just like how nice it could be if you could just simplify your life down to a villa and three other people. <laughs> yeah. All you know, what what's interesting too about the fact that there's, you know, they have very little to work with. There's not a lot to do. Um, Hannah plays, um, hopscotch and Mm -hmm. um but also this is where i i feel like the theme of storytelling comes in um and what do they do but tell each other stories about what's happened to them in the war and then of course the english patient um or or hannah reads to him Mm -hmm. and then um and then he of course is you know recounting his memories and we get his story um kind of like shaharazad like keeps um going so i think that that sense of, you know, again, having nothing to do and relying on story to sort of fill the hours. Is uh, the, the scenes of where, so in the book, uh, she's reading out loud to the English patient uh, books from the, libra- the uh, uh, villa library. And she goes and reads some of them. And even if he falls asleep completely, she will just continue reading <laughs> yeah. out loud. And just, um, he talks about how there's like, to the English patient, there must be huge swaths of pages missing. And for some reason, like, that made me really, like, <laughs> mad. As someone who's like, he's missing He's it. missing out on the story. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like when you're watching a movie with someone and they get up to go get a snack or something, and you're like, where you, 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 you going? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. It's like, it is fine. How is it fine? <laughs> <laughs> There's something great about that, too, with these characters and their stories and knowing that they're never going to have all of the bits of their individual stories, but they are like all relentlessly trying to just discover themselves and each other. And even when plot points are are like plot quote unquote things come up, like when the identity of the English patient is finally revealed, they're all just sort of like, Oh, okay. But like, tell us more about that thing you did. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of this, subversion of expectations of it not being it's about the people and mm-hmm. their lives as opposed to some like building to some th- thing yeah like unmasking him and it's like it was him that murdered the i don't know what it was yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i can see uh i guess i can see why it won uh, uh the man booker prize you know and why it made such a good movie mm-hmm. i can't wait to to see it, I know it's got um, it's got an incredible cast. It's too. got Navid Andrews, I think his name is, mm-hmm. who uh, was a recurring one of the main characters on Lost. Um, yeah, so he really likes to hang out in island on <laughs> in small places and yeah. Juliette Binoche plays oh, yeah. Hannah. Willem Dafoe is, I think Caravaggio, Caravaggio. Right? and isn't mm-hmm. it uh, Ray Fiennes mm-hmm. as, uh, the as the, the English, English patient? patient? Yeah. yeah. That guy likes to have his face messed up.
Well, you know, we'll recommend that. And with that, let's go to recommendations um, yeah. for the time. Yeah. Uh, do you recommend something, Vanessa? Well, I, speaking of, you know, another book by Michael Andage, I would suggest um, In the Skin of a Lion, which is actually the kind of precursor to The English Patient. Um, and it focuses on uh, immigrant workers in Toronto. And it sort of follows the, the, the life of um, some of these some of these workers um, who have helped to build the city of Toronto. Mm. And then um, it mostly follows the story of Patrick, who is Hannah's father. Whoa. And then we actually see Hannah as a young girl. Um, Which and is sort of referred to with exact, the Caravaggio. Exactly, because the Caravaggio is friends with Patrick. And then Caravaggio makes is also a character in, in The Skin of a Lion. Huh. And so... It's also a novel that moves back and forth in time, and there's um, a love story between Patrick and these two actresses, and I don't. It's just it's just very interesting to s- to think why did these particular characters stay with him, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and how he brought them, you know, forward into the English Patient, and I often feel. Like he was working up to what he was able to do in the English Patient in In the Skin of a Lion. So In the Skin of a Lion was actually it did come out even before the English. Okay, yes. Wow. Yes. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I read it in re- reverse order, okay. um, which was interesting because you know that you you have this idea of who Hannah is and who Caravaggio is, and you've heard about Patrick and the English Patient, and it's just interesting to go back and see them in a completely different setting. Very cool. I get, yeah, I guess we're gonna end up doing that too. Yep, seems like that's how that'll happen. <laughs> uh, how about you? What are I you recommending this week? I'm going to recommend um, an audio book, as I do sometimes. You um, do indeed. Uh, I uh, listened to uh, John Malkovich hmm. reading uh, Kurt Vonnegut's novel, a Breakfast of Champions. Oh, wow. Which is super weird and one of, one of Vonnegut's weirdest books. Yeah. Um, and, you know well-matched with one of the weirdest actors. (laughs) Um, But one of the really reasons why I think you actually should listen to this book, even though there's a lot of illustrations, like a lot of Vonnegut's illustrations are throughout Breakfast of Champions, uh, Malkovich describes them. (laughs) So so he'll get to the point where there's a picture and you see, and uh, there's a a primitive drawing of, uh, of an American flag. It seems like he he didn't draw as m- many stars as there should be. <laughs> I recommend it just for that. I was going to say I just want to go find those. <laughs> but yeah, that's my recommendation is to go uh, and go listen <laughs> to John Malkovich reading Breakfast of Champions. What about you, Drew? Um, mine is a book that I feel like um, Ondaatje was definitely. He must have read it before writing the English Patient, and it's uh, Lawrence Durrell's. Justine, which is the first book of his Alexandria Quartet. Yeah, you know, I've often actually thought of that myself. Because the, the, um, the love affair and sort of the, the, the love triangle mm. and like the doomed thing in the desert uh, before World War II, it, it feels like it's happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, Darrell's book is, I think, far and away the most beautiful thing I've ever read. That book just, it where 
on Dodge is like, it's gonna, it's flowy and it's mm-hmm. quiet. Mm-hmm. Darrell is like, this, you are going to experience every emotion that these people experience, and you're gonna feel it. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Well, yeah. um, you know, I'm going to make my usual heartfelt plea to uh, go on iTunes and uh, and. And say hi to us. And say hi to us. Uh, rate us and, and, and write a review. And also email us. We have an email address that no one knows exists, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, so many damn books at gmail.com. And uh, if you have a disagreement or an agreement or a book you'd like us to check out or just a thought um, for me, like a praise of me or criticism of Drew. Or just saying hi. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, please do. We uh, like it when people say hi. Mm-hmm. And uh, follow us on Twitter. And, you know, go out and uh, pick up The Invention of Exile by Vanessa Manko. It's out in paperback. Very beautiful uh, cover change. Big change. Very. <laughs> <laughs> uh, between from hardcover to paperback, which is something yeah. that always interests me. Yeah. I mean, I was sort of shocked by the image at first. And then I thought, oh, no, I know that's it's kind of iconic and... Um, and it has that sort of 1940s feel, obviously. Yeah, definitely. And, um, oh, and um, the drink that you've probably heard the ice of today <laughs> um, oh. is, uh, it's called the Tinker, uh, which is what uh, I feel like Austin is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, um, it's silver tequila, which uh, for Mexico City. Um, and it's, uh, then you mix that with lemon juice and uh, Earl Grey simple syrup. And uh, you shake that up and pour it over ice and then top it off with ginger beer and black iced tea. And it makes a really um, good drink, I think. Yeah. One of my favorites yet. It's delicious. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, subscribe and tune in next time when we read a different book. I'll be yours if you'll be mine I tried to change, but I changed my mind Think I'll have another glass of Mexican wine